Hello, everyone. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, coming back to you with episode two of our 100th episode. We're celebrating that again yeah. here today. I've asked everybody to wear the same clothes for convenience <laughs> for the kids out there, but joined by Continuity. Clinical Director of yeah. our men's program, Lorna Tencio. Hello again. LAC, LPCC, almost all the clinical things. All the things. Almost. Ish. And yeah. getting there in clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Clint Nicholson, Chief Operating Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, LAC, LPC, all the clinical things. All the things. clinical things. And yeah. here we are to bring you the second part of this long but important episode. So let's dive right in. Uh, so uh, moving forward into the episode, you know, we have substance use disorder and we've talked about it uh, on our episodes here of what kind of Peak's vision is to disrupt an industry through quality of care. And disruption's a big word certainly at the end of the day, but one of the things we set out to do kind of in the very beginning of this is um, see addiction as a behavior and nothing more and in the same lineup of any other mental health disorder, just with different conditions and symptomology, right? And to remove the framework of addiction as an identity principle and refocus the conversation into what we believe or have come to know as just a mental health uh, condition. But before diving into it, because we'll know uh, Clint's thoughts at the end of this, uh, Clint Nicholson, LPC, LIC, all the things, yeah. was a huge um, not just a proponent, but uh, a huge catalyst for our company culture to move away from this language and to really instill it and uh, also to allow us the opportunity as a staff to really discuss and negotiate it. Uh, you were going to win at the end of the day anyways because you're the chief, but, uh, but really beautifully it brought this into our company culture. So without further ado, Koof, hit it, see what Clint has to say about this. Well, I think specifically within the substance uh, use world, addiction has a sense, like you've been alluding to, of permanency. Like it's something that is just always there and it becomes a part of your character. It becomes a part of who you are and it's something that, and this can go I guess both ways, it's something that people start to identify with and identify as, as an addict. And in that sense, um, it's sort of like a scarlet letter, but it's a tattoo. It's not something that you can rip off your clothes, it's something that you forever wear on your skin, and um, that starts to bring in the more shame-based narratives about addiction within our culture, or within substance use and substance dependence in our culture, which is that it's some, uh, a moral deficiency, right? That there is something, um, there is a, a lack or uh, an inability to control oneself that is based in weakness, which is why you are this thing that we call an addict. So um, that's the first part of my answer. There are multiple parts, but I want to give. Well, in, and in a way too, right? The anonymous culture, the thing we're trying to bring, bring to light, the 22 million, 25 million people in recovery, those sort of features remained in anonymity because, or maybe as a result of that negative connotation that was experienced by Absolutely. it, that we couldn't yeah. talk about it openly because of this character trait or flaw or however right. it was perceived. This is something, it becomes something that I am rather than something that I'm struggling with, right? And it, because of that, I think that we, um, the, using the word perpetuates those sorts of belief systems and stereotypes and that need for anonymity. Yeah. <clears throat> I saw you both look at me, so I'll go ahead and yeah, speak to this your a cue. little bit. I thank you. Um, I do think a couple things came to mind as you guys were talking. First being um, 
that it, I've been doing this long enough now to watch the word alcoholic kind of go from uh, a common phrase used, and now we don't use it uh, in a clinical sense at all. Do we say the word alcoholic or alcoholism? Um, because of that connotation, I believe, frankly, and, um, and really because it also set apart other addictions or other substance use disorders apart from alcohol use disorder, if you will. And so um, we've already, we, we have some precedent in our industry of like moving away from vernacular that begins to not make sense um, or has kind of a pejorative connotation to it. Um, the other thing that I do think though that's interesting um, from the super smart Dr. Harvard British guy uh, is that even in AA, there was this sense, uh, there, there's a portion of the book that talks about alcohol reaching a point of neutrality, which I think is interesting. That's before kind of the neuroscience of it all. But even, even in that um, uh, older literature, there is, they do talk about reaching a point where, where you, like, alcohol doesn't trigger you one way or cravings don't occur one way or another. It reaches neutrality. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Back at it. Yeah. Redefining, you know, addiction. And I think that you know, for me, first and foremost, like what comes up is like, it's kind of an identity crisis, you know, that I am this thing and will always be these things. And we start, you know, and I, and I think there's a lot of value in celebrating 10, 20, 30 years of recovery and these types of things, but 10, 20, 30 year celebrations are recognition of addict and recovery from what then, right? Um, in that regard, if I haven't resolved sort of the behaviors associated with this, and this is not to imply like a relapse or the potential to drink or use drugs uh, again in, in whatsoever, but if we're celebrating recovery but still holding onto the word of addiction, it seems like we have not moved beyond those behaviors. But the fact that we're 10, 20, 30 years in recovery reveals that we've kind of moved beyond those behaviors yeah. and the identity no longer makes sense is kind of my first take on it. Yeah, I mean, if you look up the definition of recovery, it is, a return to our normal state of mind, health, and something else. Like it has nothing to do with addiction. It has nothing to do with any of those things. And I think we overlook that in a way, and I like the way you said it, is that we're all in our own like process of recovery. And maybe it's not substance use. Maybe it's not all of these addictions that we take on. And I think what really stood out with you in that video was the I am an addict, right? What yeah. do we say when we go to any meeting and you open up Lauren, alcoholic, and then everyone says, hi, that's who I am. It defines who I am as everything. And, and with that label, I am already less than in this world. Um, we've talked about it a lot, you know, hospitals, um, you, they see alcoholic and unfortunately that person is already treated poorly because they, they did this to themselves. You did this to yourself, right? Overlooking the mental health part of it, that this man is drinking because he's trying to support a family of five, is drowning in bills, is drowning in his own childhood trauma, and doesn't know how to get out of it. Why do we just say you're not as important as the other guy sitting in the room? Because he's an alcoholic. It just takes the value of being a human away. Like, I'm no longer a human at that point to anybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a huge problem that we face. Well, and I think now that I think about it even more in my sort of brilliant outtakes there, uh, <laughs> I think that it also, I think, explains some of the popularity and power of the, of the rooms, of the 12-step rooms. Because you do, you walk in, you say, I'm an addict, and then everybody says hi, and you become a part of something. Mm -hmm. You become, you're, you're accepted into this little 
tribal culture of people like you that are separate from the rest of the world. And not only is it true sort of socially, but then you get into the treatment world and you actually have, again, we have substance use treatment and then we have mental health treatment. And they've been these two separate things for so long because one couldn't possibly be like the other. If you're an addict, your problem is that you are a bad person. Yeah. You know? It's not that you have hard problems. Mm. It's that you are actually just a, a bad individual. Why you don't know? you just stop? Yeah, there's a weakness to you mm -hmm. that even in our uh, the, the medical field, and we see this in ERs a lot, we see this in, um, in a lot of real and just what we would probably consider objective spaces where medicine is just medicine, right? But people who have, who go to the ER with uh, an active addiction are, um, and with substance use disorders are, are often treated quite differently. Yeah. You know, they're looked at as suspicious, as, as a nuisance, as some a sort of a, a threat. A threat to culture rather than, or in society, rather than a part of it. So we really see um, the, the impact and the sort of, uh, the, the social connotations that this concept of being an addict is rather than I am somebody struggling with substances. You know, there are people that, and, and I think um, we have to change that. Mm -hmm. We absolutely have to change it. And I don't think that, you know, in bringing this to Peaks and bringing this to the Peaks culture, it wasn't hard because I think everybody already knew. I think our culture was one of acceptance and love anyways. And I think we were so, when you work with marginalized communities and the disenfranchised for long enough, you just get so angry and you get so tired of it. And at some point you have to, you make a change internally that we're just not gonna do it the old way anymore because the old way is stupid. Mm -hmm. It's wrong, it doesn't work, and it actually doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So um, I don't think, I didn't have to try very hard to bring this to Peaks. I think Peaks was, that, that pump was primed just through the passion and love and, and the people that we had working there. Mm -hmm. And it's, the volume has been turned up way more than I ever could have even imagined. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so. even our substance use primary clients, they come in and they feel so seen because they're like, finally, it's just, it's not just the alcohol. Like at that, I'm not broken yeah. in that way, right? Like you guys see and you understand my anxiety and my depression and my bipolar and any of these things like you guys get it you're not just making me a problem because of my substance use and and that's where I think we thrive too is like they feel very very seen because it's not just like okay here's a coping skill to make you stop drinking it's yeah. like hey let's talk about that anxiety that always leads you to that drink mm -hmm. and it's like yes that's it mm -hmm. yeah and, and nurtured at or nurtured uh, nestled within kind of the center of this as a treatment program too like we you know, the reason I talk about it is kind of an identity crisis because it, it creates passivity about future poor behaviors. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And we hear it all the time, like, well, you know, I'm cheating on my wife because I got the addict brain, mm -hmm. can't stop that. Or, yeah. you know, I continue to lose my jobs, you know, and whatever, because, you know, my addict brain. And it's not to be facetious here, but you don't hear people go, well, I cheated on my wife because of, you know, my depressed brain, because my right. anxious brain, mm -hmm. you know, and that type, we aren't, those, th these mental health, features are not carrying forward as an identity. Now, the identity of recovery is carrying forward, but with a much different 
sort of feel Absolutely. to it yeah. uh, at the end of the day that's non-excusatory and it's more celebratory in that way of things. And I think that's, this is what happens when we take a word like addiction and apply it to self, right? It starts to inform behavior rather than the ability to change and move away from. And even though we might be 30 years from our last drink, we're still suffering in a variety of different yeah. ways, Absolutely. right? And yep. the word addict has not helped us resolve anything else. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that we use recovery solely to refer to um, like substance use is just so ridiculous. You know, it, it limits what it means for us to, we are all in a state of recovery. You know, we're always, we're, we are always recovering from something. And, and um, I, I think that to, to limit that, that concept and that, um, in that celebration that comes with um, living a life in recovery or becoming or experiencing what it means to be in recovery mm -hmm. is um, it, it really shortchanges the entire system, right? And so we've this idea that, and again, I think we started with this like two and a half years ago, really this idea of why do we keep these two worlds so separate? Why is substance use and why is mental health? Why are we living in this dichotomous world when it is all one thing? We are all suffering. Mm -hmm. And whether we are handling it through, uh, through drinking or if we're handling it through gambling or we're handling it through um, you know, having uh, affairs, we, we're just doing our best to figure it out. We're, we're, we have a behavior that we've adopted that is allowing us to try to, at the very least, get through the day. But we can do better. You know, if we can just focus on that underlying issue, that is that impulse that's pushing us forward, we can actually figure out what it, the hell is actually happening and really going on. Yeah, so. and I think using the word recovery universally, right? Like when we call the clinical team, when we call families, we make it a point to say, hey, this is your recovery too. Yeah. This isn't just this guy or this girl over here. Like it's for you as well. And just being able to see what does my recovery mean? What does a recovery from mental health, even going into like the different verbiage we use in the sense of like cravings. I think the thing that people think about when they think of cravings is, oh, I need a drink right now. No, the cravings is just a desire to feel differently. I just don't want to feel this way anymore. Right. Yeah. So what do I know fixes that? Alcohol, substances, whatever it is. So that's why we, again, we put it in a box. This is all it means is that you want alcohol or drugs. No, it means that you just want to feel different mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. And so being able to really start to change that verbiage as a whole, I mean, I think industry will help to put the mental health and just know that substance use is a symptom of mental health. We are treating a mental health issue and you just so happen to use substances along right. with that mental health yeah. issue. Yeah. Whereas depression, as a, as a counterpoint, just it, what you know, Lardy's saying, it just shuts you down. Yeah, it tells absolutely. your brain it's time to go to sleep, to sit yeah. in the room and sort of that way. But uh, there's, uh, that's the symptomology of the underlying condition is to absolutely. put them in bed and shut them down. Yeah. Whereas yeah. on this side, it just looks different because they're experiencing all the mental health anguish, but more in a position of power to achieve the goal of lowering that pain tolerance. Absolutely. And we know what works in America, a couple yeah. drinks and then, you know, uh, some nachos at Applebee's or something right. like that, right? And then it progresses into a condition that we've historically referred to as addiction, but really as a behavior, it just looks like a disorder now. Absolutely, yeah. And I think if we, the, the sooner we can get there and we can realize, you know, this desire to feel different is a craving, it can be a craving for alcohol. It can also actually be suicidal ideation. Yeah. Like it can be a craving to die. Like we, we are so afraid to talk about that. 
yet we have this sort of, uh, we have this epidemic in our young people where they are chasing whatever, they're chasing that craving. They're looking for that different feeling. They're looking for escape. And they see that as an escape because it's within their means. If we don't start seeing that and talking about that as, as a craving or a craving state, we are gonna continue to see this problem get worse and worse and worse. So I think that there are, and this is obviously, maybe this is episode like 107 or something like that, but um, I just think it, it shows the importance of us getting out of these boxes that Lauren was talking about mm -hmm. and really starting to have difficult conversations that are more, much more universal and much more rooted, not in 100-year-old belief systems, but in what we understand about now and today and sort of the world and, and type of suffering that people are living in currently. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. I love the way that you said that of like suicidal ideation because we don't talk about that. It's like, oh, we don't talk about that. Like that's the ultimate thing, right? But yet we have millions of people dying of fentanyl overdose every single day and we aren't talking about that the same, but it's still a substance like craving or whatever yeah. it is, right? And they know that they're at risk for dying. So yeah. why aren't we approaching that the same way as suicidal ideation even yeah. too? I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. <laughs> and and, 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 and in, uh, ushering this forward too, that, you know, our, our next guest that we're going to bring up in this video uh, was uh, Dr. Uh, Kevin McCauley, Senior Fellows at uh, world-renowned program, uh, the Meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona, and he's a disease model expert um, in the way of addiction, and he kind of came into uh, the world as a physician in this uh, sort of apex moment of the choice model being uh, taken over by the disease model. And you know, we've talked about it, one of the greatest advantages of the rooms is that notion of accountability and responsibility. You know, right or wrong, it's present and centered and, and, and extremely productive for those that you know, sit within the system. And you know, we've been talking about personal responsibility as we move through this because the, the reason that's so important to me and I think important to us at Peaks is like we, it, it ends up turning into victimhood, right? If you're not yeah. gonna change, you're just gonna use this as you know, excusatory mechanisms. We can't do anything with that. There's no ability to sort of move forward. This is why we separate out hardship from the experience of it as well too because everybody in the United States of America, I don't care who you are, I mean, we've seen millionaires and billionaires go through challenging times, <laughs> right? Everybody experiences hardship. Yeah. Everybody experiences suffering. Your suffering might be independent of mine, Mm -hmm. but we're suffering. It might even be greater than mine, but I still suffer too in the process. And so I think what society is calling on, especially around addiction or substance use disorders, excuse me, is okay, we understand yeah, that you're suffering at this level. So what are you gonna do to kind of move this uh, forward in this way? And in this episode uh, here that we did with Dr. Uh, Kevin McCulley, I think he gives light mm -hmm. into how we can take responsibility for a situation that feels uh, so difficult uh, to move away from. So, Koof, hit it. That, that silent question that people faced with addiction or uh, are steeped in that are asking themselves quietly, why did I do this? How have I arrived here in that sort of moment? And it sounds like when you arrive, you know, in that, you know, the, the Harvard of prisons there, uh, at the end of the day, you're asking yourselves, like, how the heck did I get here at the end of the day? And, um, and it seems like, right, that there's this apex moment, if I'm reading the history of our, of our industry correctly, where you're asking yourself a question that's, being, that's coming from the choice model that existed, and it's this sort of beautiful apex moment. Unfortunately, you're sitting in this cell in this apex moment reading right. that book, but the choice model is about to collide with the disease model, right. and uh, I'm just curious how that resonates with you and if that's accurate as I can experience, because you, 
you shoot out of the gates on the other side with all of these positive things that you've done on behalf of the industry and your expertise and professionalism. And so what was it like just to be a part of that, that moment and not only experiencing it on the societal level, but at that patient level as well, too? Right. Well, I, I mean, this is, this is the question that's fascinated me. I mean, where does responsibility come into it? Where does blame come mm -hmm. into it? Um, the way I envision addiction is that it's a disease of volition. And I use volition as kind of a catch-all term. It's not just the doing of something. It's the why, what drove me? Why did this option pop into my head? What is, what is the menu of options that I've got to deal with this? What are the affordances that my environment provides me to be able to meet this challenge? And then once I do it, did I do it well? Was it effective? And importantly, what's the effect of my social environment having done that? All of these things together I consider the Rube Goldberg machine of volition. Mm -hmm. And probably at the core of this is, is the problem in addiction, which is my value calculator is broken. Mm -hmm. And so the whole driver of why I should choose this versus that is off. And, and I think this, this idea of the Bayesian brain, I'm only just starting to grasp it, but every value calculation that the brain makes contains a probability calculation. And so what I have a tendency to do is not only overvalue drugs, but overestimate the probability that they'll work out as I have imagined. Mm -hmm. And I undervalue the consequences that result. And I underestimate the probability that those consequences mm -hmm. will in fact come true. I get the math wrong. So there's a certain part of my recovery that I just have to let go of. I, I'm not going to have control over the thunderclap craving or the, the twists and turns. I can't seem to make that big decision. I'm not going to use drugs anymore. If I could, I would have done it. Right. And most people do do that. And I should say that, that most people who have addiction, they kind of mature out of it over time. They make some changes and they just don't do it anymore. But for the person with active addiction who can't make that, the only choices that I can make are sort of peripheral choices that change the probability field. And that is, where do I live? Who are my peers? What is my job? You know, these are things that I do have control over. And so it became clear to me that I can't make the big decision, but I can break that big decision down into a thousand little decisions. Mm -hmm. And each of those are easier to make. Mm -hmm. And if I make enough of them, they will add up mm -hmm. to the big decision. And that's where I think responsibility enters into it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, once my addiction is moving and I'm craving and I'm using, you know, I really, uh, it, it's not that I won't be held responsible for the consequences, right. but I don't think that, that I have the same degree of choice, mens rea, mm -hmm. if you like, yeah. uh, the intent, yeah. uh, which is what the prosecutor will look for, right? Not just that bad things happen, but that I intended for that to happen. I don't think that's present right. in the craving person with addiction who's craving. But if I had failed to keep that community of recovering people in my life, if I had failed to meet the, the normative standards that are expected of a physician in recovery, those little decisions are where I'm culpable mm -hmm. and, and could be you know, held culpable if, I, if I'm not careful. Absolutely. As you know, I, I got sober in a very, very strict abstinence-based 12-step tradition. I appreciate the fact that that is not the only tradition, um, and, but, I, but I tried to do what the doctors around me did. Mm -hmm. and, and by using that, that 
culture of recovery and those expectations of recovery, I think that that's, you know, that was the one decision that I made that helped me get out of this. Mm -hmm. But I can't say, well, I chose to get sober. I just, I don't believe that it was that simple. Yeah. Well, that, I, Dr. Kevin McCauley is just so well spoken, but I love what he's talking about there. I mean, the first thing that I want to draw attention to is like, some people just mature out of this. The world presents a new job, an opportunity. I'm done, I want kids, I want a family, this sort of thing, and we kind of move away from it. And what he's highlighting there is disease-ish, you know? Right. Uh, there's a conflict yeah. that's taking place there. But for those who can't or uh, are not empowered or lack capacity to move forward in that way, the issue then becomes this, this overvaluing, this uh, probability calculator, this value calculator that he talks about is broken, and I'm uh, increasing the probability that the drugs will work this time and undervaluing the consequences that are result from it. And so what he's stating is, in responsibly speaking, you aren't gonna put down drugs and alcohol I've been using for months, years, decades, or whatever, and just move away from that. The big decision is nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. We're not asking for responsibility and accountability right then. I don't even think the rooms are right at the end of the day. What he's going on to say is, I can make decisions elsewhere though. I can yeah. change my environment. I can move into a sober living home. I can pursue a job that exposes me less to drugs and alcohol. I can go back to school but find a sober and safe you know, sorority or something like this, right, that exists within the community. I can do all these little tiny thousand things that will start fixing my broken value calculator in the mm -hmm. background simply by pursuing these. I didn't resolve the big thing, but with enough of these things in place, my value calculator is starting to fix itself. And eventually he'll go on to talk about things like neuroplasticity, but yeah. feels powerful, feels right, feels true. Yeah, um, I think this brings up the idea that, um, you know, I was talking to Tyler Kea the other day, our case manager, and, and he said, um, I had asked a client kind of in front of him, you know, uh, what's, why do you use? Like, why, like, what does it do for you that's positive? Because we only do things that really benefit us at those points. And so, you know, we have the clients who say, like, it gives me confidence. I can finally talk to people. I yeah. can t finally, you know, talk to this girl. Or it, it lets my emotions come out because I'm so used to numbing them all the, all the time. I think that's where we start is we say, why are you doing this? What's the benefit of using these substances? Well, I want to gain more confidence. Cool. Let's start over here then. What does gaining more confidence look like for you? What, do, what can you do independently outside of the substance use that gives you more confidence? Maybe it's working out. Maybe it's doing these things, but replicating those same effects that the substance has outside of the substance use. And so that's kind of what it brought up for me a little bit is this idea of instead of just saying, don't do that, like how can we get that same feeling without the substance being in there? And how can we avoid the relapse in general by putting you in a space that will actually promote confidence or promote community, those yeah. different things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, listening to, listening to him speak, it really, to me, I'm sorry, I just clicked on my mic, so. I'm learning, Cooper, I'm learning. Uh, it's this idea of um, recalibration, right? That really we are, uh, on one hand, people want recovery to be like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take out the problem and I'm gonna put it over here and it's just gonna go away and then I'm magically fixed. And it's like that it's this one big act, this big you know, cathartic experience. And it's actually not that, it's, a, a million little acts that actually that help us to 
to sort of recalibrate how we engage in the world. And the same is true very much so for trauma and, and for doing trauma work, you know? Mm -hmm. You are, it's, it's about all these tiny little choices and experiences that start to change the brain and that start to sort of re, if you want to get into neuroplasticity, you know, this is where it starts to come in, right? The brain literally starts to reform itself and you start to develop these new neural pathways that where your value system and the reward systems are, are, are geared in a completely different way. And you start to, in what was once uh, the, the sort of overvaluing of alcohol, all of a sudden, and, and the sort of undervaluing of the consequences, that, that gets flipped on its head, right? And so, um, as frustrating as this might sound for people, and I know it's very frustrating for our clients, it's a time thing, right? It's about time. This, this is a process. It's repetition. It's, um, there is a very uh, real and intentional decision-making thing in, in, that has to happen. There are, choice is a part of this, but it's typically, um, you know, to his point, not the choice of, oh, I'm just gonna stop drinking, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the, all of those tiny little choices around it that eventually get us to our final goal and get us, and get us into that state of recovery. When tiny choices even being, you know, we've had, a client, we've had actually several clients in the past who had specific chairs they drink in every night, right? It's a routine, it's a ritual, those different things. And so uh, we had a client a while back um, who had a chair that he sat in every night when he drank, and so he got home, um, a lot of the peaks guys he went through the program with went out and they had like a ceremony. They burned the chair. They got rid, like there's been clients who just get rid of it. They re, a big thing we tell clients to do when they go home, redecorate your house a little bit. Because yeah. if you're sitting in the living room every night drinking, you're gonna go back in that living room and that part of your brain is gonna be like, hey, we know what we're doing now. Like we get a drink now, you know? Right. And so moving the couch to the other side yeah. of the room, moving Move the, TV. the TV, yes. Yeah. Little tiny things that you can do in order to protect yourself and also not allow your brain to say, I know what's next. I know where we're going. Right, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah the associations in the, it, it, and again, it's, it's one of these things that we can, you know, when you dive into the science and all in the brain chemistry and all of this, like it's, it feels so complex, yet at the end of the day, it is almost this simple, right? Yeah. The smallest little, in, you know, uh, the smallest of moments and the smallest of changes in the process add up to a lot in relationship to what the brain is expecting next right. uh, in the process. And, you know, and, and we're talking about action first, right? Change Absolutely. the room. Now, what are my thoughts now that I'm sitting in this room without this chair and this is reorganized and what's coming up for me emotionally, right? Um, and craving states, I think what the, the math on is like 10 to 15 minutes and then before they, you know, resolve themselves. Yeah. So, you know, what would it like to take the action of craving? I'm just going to white knuckle it, sit here for 10 to 15 minutes. And I know at minute 16, if that doesn't work for me, I'm calling my sponsor. Yeah. And I know at minute, you know, 30 after talking to my sponsor, if that's not resolved, I'm going to go walk in the park uh, where I didn't use drugs or alcohol, you know, and those types of things um, until I can move through this with enough time and energy and persistence and doing it over and over again, right, we will be able to get to the other side of the craving uh, yeah, in absolutely. some way. And I, I do, I actually think that like by focusing on all of the little things, that is what helps you ha avoid having to white knuckle. I actually, my, my association with sort of white knuckling it is that I just want to get rid of the big thing right now mm -hmm. rather than I actually have to put in the work all the time, every second of every day in this very tedious fashion, I have to be present, aware, and engaged and make 
sound decisions uh, by recognizing um, who I am in this moment. And, and that is actually what is going to get me to my end goal as opposed to just, if I just hold on tight enough, I'll get there. It's like, no, there, you, it's not just the idea. And this is why wanting to quit isn't enough to quit. You know, there are very few addicts that really want to be addicts. Like it's, it's not, it's a thing, you know, um, it's weird, right? Uh, but it's why you can't just, the desire to quit isn't enough, right? Like that isn't what it takes. It's these hundreds of thousands of millions of little things in between that we actually have to focus on and that we have to look at that, that will get you to that end game, that will get you to that end goal. And again, socially, that is not how we are geared. Mm -hmm. We yeah. are geared for the, the panacea, the, the one answer, the one shot, the one response that works right now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's Wait. tough. I think it also goes into perfection as well, right? I think a big major factor in this process is, or barrier, I guess, is shame, is that I can't expect to do things perfectly moving forward. I, I kind of frame it sometimes as this idea is like, I've had the same thinking patterns for over 20 years. And if I really think that those thinking patterns are gonna change within a one month, two month, three month period, it's kind of a little bit ignorant of me to think because this is something I've been practicing my whole life. And so there has to be a moment of grace in there as well that says, okay, I'm gonna revert back to old patterns. I'm gonna revert yeah. back to old thinking patterns, behavioral patterns, any of these different things. And I have to find grace to say, okay, I know what it went wrong there. I know what I have to do differently next time. Instead of going to a place of like, oh, I'm never gonna get this, I'm stupid, all this stuff, because yeah. I'm just perpetuating that at that point. And that's why saying small is so important in early recovery, is because if you're trying to get the big goal within 45 days, you are going to be disappointed. You, mm. are, you have to start small. It has to be, hey, what's your morning routine look like? Yeah. Let's start there and that's right. it. And it seems so small and it's like, oh, I'm, you know, I gotta get everything I can out of this program. That's valuable. As, as, in, like, as much as it doesn't seem like it, it really is to know my morning routine is absolutely everything in order to overcome my mental health. Yeah, and what is likely gonna be the first experience of any first time changes, right? Especially, you know, hanging out with our patient demographic, and, and it's even for myself too. You go to make that change. I'm getting up at 5 a.m., you wake up at 5 a.m., no drugs or alcohol is the first thing. Feels kind of fucking stupid. <laughs> this, this is gonna change it? Yeah. Stupid therapist, you know, yeah. in the background, like, you know, sort of thing, but it's the process of it. Eventually we get the sunlight on and now we're moving and we've walked the dog and we got the kids in school, like whatever it is moving forward, it's just the beginning of a very long process. And the initial feeling of it is because the brain already has a solution. It's not a yes. good one, not even a great, yeah. it's not, not even a valid one, but you know, it has that in the background. And so even though we know this is a painful experience, like we talked about in the beginning of the episode, the brain wants to revert back to it because we don't know what this path looks like. Absolutely. And when we first put our you know, shoes on and step out on that path, it feels kind of stupid. Absolutely. And we just need, and I want to acknowledge that. And it takes mm -hmm. courage to move beyond those moments and not to feel shame in those moments and to go, you know what, I know what the easier thing is. Peaks didn't work, my therapist was stupid, and this is never gonna work for me. Oh, it's the trauma. That's yeah. what I should have worked yeah. on and treated. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. it's the trauma. Yeah. It's the trauma. It's always yeah. the trauma. There it is, yeah. coming back. So, um, I'm gonna hit the, I'm gonna hit the uh, uh, we're not gonna review this clip on the other side of it, but I did want the audience to uh, review, 
because uh, Dr. Kevin McCauley was in the apex moment of this choice model to disease model, has championed the disease model there, but Gabor Mate has kind of brought in this new sort of relationship of, well, it's not new, but the, the, the model of pathology, um, that all of these little parts, right, are leading up to kind of the issue, and, you know, Gabor Mate's kind of claim to fame, right, as I understand it, is that we're all traumatized. For sure. <laughs> at the end yeah. of the day, and for that reason, in those hardships, um, that's what's driving kind of the illnesses and the things that we're experiencing. But there's a sort of collision there with the disease model because it's no longer a thing sort of stuck in the brain. It's all these processes mm -hmm. yeah. that led to this moment at the end of the day. And so I'm going to hit the viewers with Dr. McCauley's insights onto this potential transitioning in models um, that we're experiencing as a nation. And uh, so hit it, Coop. You know, uh, you know, the thing that comes up, we talked about a little earlier. Again, it's referencing Gabor Mate. He's a big figure in... Um, in the substance use disorder space, mental health primary space, and for a lot of great reasons. He's writing some incredible books, but the, it seems like we're at this new sort of apex moment, right? We did choice into disease, and now we're, you know, and then now we're in this moment of, I wouldn't know what to call it, but under the language, the disease model of pathology versus processes. Right. And Gabor Mate seems to be really pushing that it's processes, not pathology. And through your lens, right. I'm curious, you know, for the viewers out there, what does that mean to you? And um, how, do you, how do you see this positively shifting this? And how much of, do you see the disease model still resonating even under maybe this new lens, if it is this new apex moment we're, we're moving sure. through? Sure, it's complex. Um, the trauma narrative is a powerful narrative and it's given voice to many people. And I think it's, a, it's a, you know, something certainly that I support. It's having a moment right now, so it doesn't matter what I think. Um, and I definitely appreciate Dr. Matei's humanity and all of his work and the power of his writing. It's important to understand that Dr. Matei is a Canadian and the things that work in Vancouver do not necessarily work in the United States. If you said harm reduction 15 years ago, your career was over. <laughs> you would never get funding. You would always be on the periphery, the political, you know, wasteland, <laughs> um, doing very good work. Mm -hmm. Harm reduction has always been the national policy of Health Canada. And so because Canada has a more public health understanding in general, because people were actually willing to put on masks, can Canadians are just nicer people than Americans. I think they are more higher evolved life form, quite frankly, because they can say things like sorry, right? Americans can't do that. So you're never going to get safe injection sites or safe supply into the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to understand the, the possibility landscape okay. that operates in a country like Canada and how it's different from the United States. Um, and that would be that, that sort of embedded nature of, of addiction. I, I certainly do respect the idea of not just reducing addiction to pathology, uh, to understand these processes. I would like to know more about that. I'm saying that the processes that are possible in Canada may be very difficult in the United States. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. When people ask if addiction is a disease, at least 15 years ago, people would say, well, we really have to you know, let the doctors answer that question. Okay, if you get the doctors in the room and you ask them that question, they're gonna turn to the pathologists. Pathology is an amazing field five years of training after medical school. That's as much as a general surgeon. And then there are usually um, more specialty training that you can get in addition to that. Mm -hmm. There's an old joke that uh, uh, 
surgeons know nothing and do everything and internal medicine doctors know everything but do nothing <laughs> and pathologists know everything and do everything one day too late. <laughs> you should just understand the, the, the massive fund of knowledge that a pathologist must have. And a pathologist sees disease as injury, whether it's a big injury like a broken bone, whether it's a molecular injury, right? I don't think that we should give up on the pathology model just yet. Because if you're really trying to understand how things like structural racism, housing discrimination, uh, not expanding Medicare, actually create inflammatory states that lead to disease, your best way of linking those two worlds is with the disease model, is with that pathophysiology. And that's why I'm kind of interested, and I don't know much about it, this idea of psychoneuroimmunology, mm -hmm. that, that, that really the very same inflammatory state that occurs in the lungs of a person dying of COVID is occurring in the brain of a person who's been traumatized or has addiction or has schizophrenia. It's just happening at a much lower grade over years. Mm -hmm. And so um, we don't want to give up on the pathology model because it's also been the most successful human endeavor ever. Mm -hmm. It has doubled the human lifespan in 100 years. And so I understand that it's, that it's an annoying model, that it's highly reductive, no one likes to be reduced, <laughs> that it's purely materialist, and it doesn't understand so much more, it doesn't understand the ecology of how disease plays out, but there's a lot to be mined there. How? does housing discrimination cause disease? Your best way to understand that is with a pathology model. So I would like to talk about both of those things. I would like to know more about both of those things. Uh, I think that they're actually uh, much less divisible mm -hmm. uh, if you take a public health ecologic approach to disease. So with, within our industry, I think one of the major things that at least I've highlighted that we've wanted to move away from is this, you know, coercion and independent philosophies of treatment, right? Mm. You're going to come to peaks and all you get is the 12 steps. Why? Because that's how I got well and that's what I believe. Yeah. I was on a, a call with some executive, you know, leaders in the uh, state of Colorado the other day and I was talking through some of these things and like the challenges of the 12 steps as a monotherapeutic value. Medications are monotherapeutic. And one of the guys at the end was like, hey, my time's really important. I don't want all these opinions coming in. But the issue and what was intention, what my trauma response was, was that <laughs> I'm not coming from this from a position of pain. These are real facts. These things yeah. in and of themselves do not work for everyone. And we yeah. should acknowledge that as an industry yeah. and open up the path to what we are talking about here as a spiderweb approach. And so before diving into it, I just want to throw this uh, video up from a past episode uh, where we negotiate you know, coercion and independent philosophies as uh, being in between uh, us and the patient at any given time. I believe this was an episode we did together with um, Kevin Franciotti. Yeah. Uh, and if I'm wrong about that, the I'll just okay re-record and we'll shoot it back in, but Coove hit it. <laughs> Kevin Happy to blow up that ship because <laughs> I literally was bailed out of county jail, mm. brought to uh, the Long Island Drug and Alcohol Abuse Research uh, Resource Center, uh, sat in front of a, a lovely woman um, who was doing her best to keep my parents calm, um, but she recommended a couple of places, and the next thing I know, I'm whisked away off to that. Um, no autonomy, no say. I mean, did I have a right at that time? Was I pissing people off in my life? Who am I to be entitled for that? 
but is that really the pretext to an engagement in therapeutic care that we want? Um, the treatment center that I did go to out in Long Island uh, was essentially a place where I could get drugs and I met the people that I could get drugs from because I was not interested in abstinence at the time. Mm. Um, yes, I'm not saying that to brag. I'm not right, saying yeah, that yeah. that's what I deserve to be doing. Right. I'm just saying that was my mindset. So why would I be at a place where I'm supposed to be in a controlled environment and yet my main interest is in hooking up with the other people who aren't taking this seriously and can help me get some stuff. So after a few days I left. Um, and, and I came back home, had a challenging moment, you can imagine, with my parents to try to advocate for myself in a healthy way, but still as an unhealthy person. Yet again, like, what other medical condition would require that? Somebody who is being treated poorly through the treatment model offered him, and yet is still struggling with his own pathology, has to become his own advocate, I mean, any, any family member of a loved one with cancer or a complex diagnosis that argues with insurance companies about coverage knows what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what happens in addiction. And so, you know, when I did go to a place that I had more of a say in, I chose a, 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 a rehab that was in a, a more secluded environment in upstate New York. It was a nicer campus, a little more laid back. But I didn't really know what I was doing. so during my intake process, I got all the same kind of scare, scare tactics. Oh, this is how many drugs you've been doing and you're only in your mid-20s? Yeah, you're going to be dead by 30. Mm -hmm. Like, who sets you up for success by, by giving you that doom and gloom mentality? Right. And the whole notion of sitting in a room with 40 people and the facilitator says, you know, look to your left, look to your right. One of them's going to be in jail. The other one's going to be dead. Are you going to be clean or back here? Again, these scare right. tactics things do not work. So a year later, after leaving an environment like that, relapsing within weeks, knowing I'm bottoming out again, why would I just want to go back to that? Mm -hmm. Knowing that my parents spent like tens of thousands of dollars on that experience and I'm going to ask them to buy more? Yeah. No, I need a different approach. Right. And that's right. kind of what this measure is allowing us to do. That's what my path and my story led to. Um, and so even as a practitioner today, as a licensed addiction counselor, I feel like I predominantly work as a systemic harm reduction provider. Like yeah. I need to educate parents, educate clients, educate people on the devastating uh, void left by ineffective treatment interventions that people like me are trying to carry the weight for. Absolutely. Beautifully stated, and I think the word that comes up for us at Peaks a lot and what we're really trying to uh, engage with out of Proposition 122 is namely innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, we are stuck in a variety of ways as an industry, couched in some of those um, kind of horrible ways of approaching patient care, look to the left, look to the right type behavior. And this is an opportunity to take something, at least for us, right, something like a 90-day, you know, let's just to, you know, do a, a quick couching in terms of like a major depressive disorder where cognitive behavioral therapy as an evidence-based approach can take 90 days to punch through that rumination, right, for the individual. And these um, plant-based medicines might give us the, I don't say might, I want to say strongly that they will give us the opportunity to kind of punch through the ego, whatever it is that uh, we want to couch the terms in, uh, in a much faster uh, way. And then for this uh, next one, then we'll jump into the discussion with it here. Uh, stay with me, you two. Yeah, we're there. Yeah, right energy. Coop can bring Absolutely. in more energy drinks if you guys need it. <laughs> um, but
But we got an independent philosophy rant. I believe it's my rant, uh, but let's hit him with it, Koo. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, you know, one of the things I'm like boiling in my thought bubble here about is just like, and we <laughs> talked, we talked about it in the curriculum, you know, meeting a little bit uh, the, this past week, uh, Lauren or I brought it up. <clears throat> Hopefully, the room got what I was putting down. But, you know, you 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 break your arm, right? And you go into the emergency room. Uh, the costs are fixed. There's generally a timeline for it. This MD is going to treat it the same way. This MD, DO, MD, and so forth, right? You know, with slight variations, maybe on the the movement of the scalpel, right? But at the end of the day, there's a common thread for how to do that. Our industry has, hey, we can fix that broken arm. We can fix the behavioral issues that are going on. But we have a pretty particular philosophy about how to do that, right? It would be like as insane as walking in the emergency room and the guy, you know, the doctor stating, look, I'm going to fix this. We're going to go under the knife. But when you wake up, it's not going to be in a cast because I don't believe in casts. <laughs> you know, you're just going to have to sit really still. But I promise this will actually heal better than without the cast. Trust me, you know, like you're going, all that sort of thing. And so absurdities aside, you know, it, it's these individualized philosophies within care that become so restrictive, right? And so, um, and, and create that coercion mechanism that I think is off-putting for a lot of individuals who participate in treatment episodes, right? What is it like for somebody to come into Peaks and instead of us just being like, hey, this is our philosophy and this is what you have to do, like, these are the things we're doing. How can we make this the most beneficial experience for that? It still has restrictive features in it, but it's less restrictive than a full-blown philosophy. At the same time, if we had something like the advantages that will come out of Proposition 122 to give that intervention on the front end, you know, post-detox, it's got to be appropriate, of course, like all of these things are going to be set up to engage with this thoughtfully. On the other side of that, what about these aspects of our care do you really want to engage in? Or, you know, what is the next step if not these levels of care, you know, out there in the world that we can connect you with that's going to make this meaningful and reinforce, reinforce that autonomy approach to care? So why I had that uh, kind of initial t thought in talking about, well, Brandon, you're just giving us opinions at the end of the day. Well, like, what I want the world that is watching this, all the 8 billion <laughs> the of you around the world, world. right now, yeah. world. episode 100, popcorn and soda, just waiting for Brandon and, and to bring this episode <laughs> yeah. forward uh, at the end of the day, uh, is that um, what you've heard from this episode today is that, yes, medications don't always work 15 to 30 percent efficacy yes the rooms don't always work for each individual yes um, there are limitations to you know talk therapy yes society is causing a major issue here what are we not doing along the way right we are not stating no 12 steps we are not stating no medications we are not stating no talk therapy we are not eliminating the things that lack efficacy we're seeking to improve upon the efficacy. If medications work for somebody and can stabilize them for a moment so we can do talk therapy, you get medications, right? You step into Peaks Recovery Centers, a little too much mental health stuff going on, you want to engage in some you know, meetings and rooms, we're going to put that in front of you at the end of the day, right? It's the ability to kind of maneuver toward the patient's needs and give them access in these restrictive care environments. And what is missed historically in our industry is people call you know, family systems, and then we're going to get them well. No, yeah, we do all those things, but then we're just going to put them in the rooms at the end of the day. Yeah. And we have such a history of that. And that's the thing that I seek to disrupt and the thing that we want to move away from. I think the rooms at times look at medications like that's drug seeking. Therefore, we can't use those things. It might be drug seeking, but if it gets me closer to yeah. give somebody four milligrams of Suboxone, 
to do talk therapy to start working on issues that reduces their capacity or future interest and the desire to use something that's probably laced with fentanyl that may kill them. Fuck yeah, it. we'll use that. We'll <laughs> yeah, that. we're gonna yeah, do that, we'll right? So want to do that. Literally, harm reduction. That's what we're trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. Is yeah. trying to reduce the harm. We, like you said, we have. I mean, statistically, I'm sure it's up a bunch, but deaths happening every day do this, uh, I mean, primarily opiates, right? And mm -hmm. so how do we get in front? And I think you said it greatly too, is like, why do we keep telling people what works best for them? <laughs> like, it's yeah, not, absolutely. I don't know what works best for you or you. I, I probably sometimes know what's best for me. And if everyone around the table is telling me I don't, how much shame am I being, in, am I inducing at that point again, right? Am I, if I'm sitting around a table and I'm like, no guys, listen, like I know that this is gonna help me and everyone around the room is like, actually it's not, then how am I ever supposed to be empowered and believe in myself? It's just not gonna work out that way, so. Well, and we have this horrible pattern of taking, uh, like you were just saying, Lauren, taking the healing power away from the individual mm -hmm. rather than handing it back to them. Like, it's like, no, you can't do this. Like, everything you've done is wrong because we can tell by the fact that you're here with us right now that you're a bad person, you do things wrong. So I'm gonna tell you how to do things right, and if you do them exactly how I tell them to, you're gonna become a better person. Like, it's completely disempowering, and it gives, there's no self-efficacy. There's, there's no moment for that individual to say, and, and to really embrace the, the fact of the matter that they are responsible for their own healing. Like they need to be an active participant in this process, or else it's just not going to work. You right. know, um, we we have this saying in the in the uh, field of therapy. You know, like meeting the client where they are. Everybody says meeting the client where they're at, but that is just poor grammar. But so yeah, meeting the client. I know. Yeah, meeting the client where they are. Are we ever really doing that? You know, like it's so rare to find a program that actually sees somebody where they are and starts with, all right, what do you need? Mm -hmm. Like, where, what do you want? What has worked for you? Where are you in this process? Rather than walking in and saying, all right, I, I've got a hole, I'm gonna tell you exactly what you need to do. That's nonsense, it's just absolute nonsense. So the problem with true client-centered care is it's time-consuming, it's expensive, and it is the, again, it goes against the sort of social current of I can get this, somebody, I just need you to tell me what to do. You know, like, just mm -hmm. tell me what to do, I'll do it and I'll be cured. Um, so, again, the, the things that work are the things that people don't want to hear work. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like, it's like CrossFit. Like, yeah, I hate that it, you just hate that it Stupid. works, but good Lord if it doesn't, you know, <laughs> so you look great. So, yeah, absolutely. You yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I, I really, I really appreciate what Kevin was saying there, and I think that, you know, our, I, I love that Peaks has, we have adopted a philosophy. We have our, we have an opinion, and our philosophy is that all philosophies have a place. Every opinion matters, um, but in the end, it's got to be up to the client. You know, and our job is to facilitate how to help the client best serve, learn how to serve themselves. You know, in the end, we have to, we're gonna cut ties at some point. You know, this isn't a permanent relationship. We're not gonna be in your life forever. Exactly. You're going to have to figure out how to do this on your own. And if we're giving you tools that you're never gonna use, then we've done nothing. So, um, yeah, I really, I think that it's, uh, it's gonna be a huge shift for the industry to take this on. Um, 
I don't know, I'm a, a pessimist by nature, even though I've been kind of like in an optimist moment, so maybe it'll work, I don't know. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. And what, what we're talking about is going to work here in, in kind of taking this episode out is, uh, so here in the great state of Colorado, Colorado, they started the medical marijuana movement. They were second to the psychedelic movement yeah. behind Oregon. But I think from comparing state statutes and uh, in that regard, I think Colorado is doing this fundamentally better Absolutely. and more correctly and allowing it to be more of a therapeutic value. Uh, than some other distracting values that I think come up in the organ system. That's for the viewers out there to debate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Here I am man, <laughs> talking about no philosophies and I'm giving my philosophy. Anyways, <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, where Proposition 122 is passed here in the state of Colorado, fairly overwhelmingly, just shy of 54% of the population voted it in place. Uh, it's referred to the Natural Medicine Health Act, which allows for, uh, well, uh, instigates decriminalization and past criminalization. So if you are in prison for you know, possession of psychedelics, you are gonna get released in this process. If you possess psychedelics and you're in your backyard and a cop comes over and says, what's this party about? And you have them in your hand, you're not gonna go to jail for it or receive a penalty for it now. Uh, and you can grow it yourself, right? So it has some of these sort of tenacious features. We're not gonna dive into it because on the other side of it, it has a therapeutic value, right? And we can bring those into settings like Peaks Recovery Centers, like outpatient clinics and mental health centers and these types of things. And the real value proposition, we've been talking about responsibility and accountability throughout this episode, and it feels like at the end of the day, right, that action first step, I have to make a decision to do this next thing, as painfully hard and as challenging it is. Well, you get to a place like Peaks Recovery, we take the thing that was working for you, you're immediately back in a state of suffering and outside that thing, it's difficult because you don't have all the probabilities that McCauley, Dr. McCauley talked about set up already. You don't have all the things, all you know is, I need, I'm craving and I need that right now and I lack control and I want to get out of here. What my hope is, is that somebody can put that next foot forward to say, okay, I'm going to get this insight. I just have to detox, right, in the process. And then I have to work with, you know, Lauren or Jason or Maddie or anybody else here at Peaks Recovery Centers to identify the goals of this set and setting I'm about to put myself into, mm -hmm. which is to ingest uh, psilocybin. Uh, and go on this psychedelic journey now with a therapist and a doctor present. Um, we'll see the full scope of staff that's needed for this moment. But I think the hope here is that, um, you know, I've had personal experiences certainly in the black market of using something like a psychedelic <laughs> like psilocybin and all I'll paint about that without waxing war stories of, of doing, you know, mushrooms is that it did give insights. Not everything that I was going through was always clear. You know, some things were wildly confusing, right? <laughs> but that's the point of the pr practitioner being there and supporting us. But it, it, it got into things that I think upon reflection of it, had I had a professional around me, I might have been able to actually do something with the information I was receiving. But to the point of choice, I think if we set this up correctly and we work well with the patient and set up that set and setting and clinically guide them, they can arrive in those moments and discover for themselves that's what I need to be working on. Yeah. When I leave this session, that's what I need to be doing. Oh, and look what else is coming up for me. And what I mean by that, right, is it could take hundreds of days of talk therapy to gain insights into a situation without individuals getting frustrated in the, that's not what it's about. Why are we talking about that? Oh, that's what it's about. And I think to kind of put a pin in it here is that is the ultimate hope for me, that it will create a weight, an awareness for which guides the individual forward and showcases that path of opportunity, not in something to be fearful of, but something like, 
I, I can see myself walking down this path. And on the other side of it, again, sitting with a therapist saying, I got this stuff in a row and I'm ready to work on it. And mm -hmm. I'm actually excited about it. And I know what that next step foot forward is. Case management, whoever, how do you help me go? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think you explained it perfectly is a path forward to work on it. I think that what we have to be careful with, uh, you know, medication assisted interventions at times is that I think we get this idea that it's just going to fix everything like mm -hmm. ketamine, psilocybin, um, any of these different things. It's like, oh, I'm going to fix it. But I think you said it perfectly of like, this is what I need to work on. It gives us insight into, oh, there's the maladaptive behavior. There's the part of me that doesn't feel healed. And so how do I, in my regular state of mind, start working towards healing that part of me. And instead of assuming that all of these different interventions are gonna fix you, I think one thing we tell clients hugely is that like, if, if you're saying we need to fix you, you're implying you're broken. And how do we view broken within the human mind, right? There's just no cut and dry thing of like, you're a broken brain, you're not a broken brain. It's not a necessarily, need to fix it's a need to adapt and change into what works for us mm -hmm. and what helps healing and what kind of allows the suffering to fall off as much as it can yeah i think the what i'm really excited about as we move into sort of the psychedelic realm is um part of it is the language the idea of journey right like this is the beginning of something not the end of something and I think when people go to treatment, they think they're going to the end of something, mm -hmm. but they're actually going to the beginning of something. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we need to be okay with that. Like we have to start, we have to take away this idea that you're going somewhere, like you said, to be fixed. It's, that's not what it's about. You're going somewhere to discover, you know, what you need to work on and you never stop working on it. Um, psychedelics are not, again, they're not a mono, uh, a mono approach, a monotherapeutic approach. It's, it's not a panacea. It's, it's, a part of the journey mm -hmm. and it's a part of the journey that helps you dive through some of the barriers of the ego that otherwise would take weeks maybe even months through talk therapy to get through um, why wouldn't we want to take that on why wouldn't we want to look at that um, but also I think it starts to open up uh, parts of our world uh, of the therapeutic world in general that we don't touch on or we touch on very in a very limited way and for me that would be the role of like spirituality mm -hmm. the role of um, identity of purpose of sort of the existential journey of the human experience um, these are really profound things that we can actually start to look at with um, I, I don't know i guess i think they kind of look frowned upon or poo-pooed upon or they, they seem they're they're so um this is, I guess, maybe the most mystical that I'll, I'll, I get in my life. But I, I just think that there is something about that path and the, uh, that part of the journey that really does teach someone how to be their own healer. Mm. You know, like we have to stop telling people that they have to look outside of themselves right. for help. Yeah. They have to start looking inside of themselves. And so, um, you know, I'm really, as a clinician, as um, somebody who's in this industry, as somebody who has been given the freedom and the opportunity to really explore um, with a, a, a treatment center that is just jam-packed full of passionate and talented individuals, like I am so eager and so 
ready to go on this journey and see where can we actually take this? You know, how can we, can we actually start empowering people again? You know, we've been living in this world in this moment of disempowerment for so long that it, I have hope that we're going to change that, that we actually are going to give people something that they can, that will ignite their, their, their uh, belief in themselves, their spirit, and their, and their desire to want to move forward. Um, maybe we can actually start to catch up socially. Um, maybe we won't be in such a, a sort of a tribal deficit like we have been up until this point. Mm -hmm. so. Definitely. Well stated. I think you have a mic drop in there somewhere. Oh, uh, Clemson. sure. Yeah, yeah that, absolutely. Was, uh, that was that was beautifully stated. And uh, I, I love the concept of people come to treatment to be treated as an end to something rather than the beginning. Uh, its actuality is that it's the beginning of a journey and a path forward. And mm -hmm. the potential for psychedelics is to open up that path more clearly where our historical innovative approaches um, you know, only work per small percentages of the times. And because we live in an insurance-based world that's delivering care at the end of the day for family systems who don't have tens of thousands of dollars to spend on treatment at the end of the day, um, time is of the essence. Absolutely. And so this feels like this speeds us up to the moment of clarifying what that journey is going to look like in those insights. And to the point of it being, you know, uh, a monotherapeutic value, that is not at all what this engaged in. Mm -hmm. That's what the medical marijuana uh, movement missed. Marijuana is not intended to be used day to day to day to day to day. It has the same addictive problems in that way of things. Mm -hmm. I think marijuana's initial influence, if we're in the Bob Marley sort of hippie days, is to smoke, oh, I feel anxiety. What is that, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> oh, now I'm thinking about this or I'm paranoid. Like, it's bringing up something, and so we should acknowledge that, but we don't continue to move through that acknowledgement by smoking every single day. And that's what the psychedelic movement is not doing, to be Absolutely. clear, right? We're talking once, twice a year to gain these insights and that, you know, that movement forward. So um, uh, we did a great episode uh, with uh, Dr. Uh, Dana Lehrman and uh, Dr. Scott Bienenfeld with Skylight Psychedelics. It's a national um, uh, uh, psych psychiatric uh, programming that exists across the nation. Uh, they, certainly they deliver, you know, medications, uh, therapy of a variety of different ways, talk therapy, ketamine therapy, TMS and so forth. Um, and then uh, Joe Schrank is a journalist who was also on the episode, fun guy, you should just watch the whole episode for him. But uh, to the point of the episode and what we're bringing here is Dr. Dana Lerman uh, described psychedelics as the ultimate concierge uh, in bringing an individual into awareness and into wellness. Um, so uh, let's hit him with it, Kuv. Totally. I think that's absolutely what we see. And, you know, listen, I think that part of it is that you know, look, addiction, like hardcore addiction is trauma, right? Whether it caused the addiction or it's the addiction itself and everything that happens or the interpersonal relationships, there is so much trauma around this disease. You know, it's probably the rule. Um, and one of the things is that I think that when people find their way to psychedelics and find their way to ketamine therapy, or whatever it is, um, it really is like kind of a new open pathway. And, and a lot of a lot of our patients um, kind of show up uh, as, you know, listen, this is this is mine. <laughs> you know, I'm owning this. They're not being coerced into their um, into their treatment. Um, and they're really able to. And, and Dr. Lehrman can really speak to this. You know, these medications like they really do get at the root kind of cause of of what's going on. They might not 
heal it instantaneously. I mean, we'd like to believe that it does, but it's certainly as as Dr. Lehrman has really kind of talked about a lot, it, it shines the light on. It. And maybe that's kind of current things that might be distant past trauma or whatever, but it's kind of a very open, honest process, which can be really hard, by the way. It's not, you know, unicorns and rainbows all the time. I mean, psychedelic treatment is can be intense. It can also be wonderful. It's a lot, a right. lot that goes on. Um, but I think that it's really, you know, people are kind of coming to it with different philosophies coming in, but almost always on the other side of it is people also, they, they don't ever regret it. I mean, it's always like, wow, this is, this is really, thank God I found this, you know, and you can see, you can right. just Google like psychedelics and depression. I, I don't tell people to Google anything in medicine. It's the dumbest thing you can do as a doctor. Because fifty percent of because you have cancer when you're done exactly, but <laughs> in this realm, actually, it's like ninety eight percent of of the stories are amazing and they're true. You know, it's like it's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and so the research is really happening. There's organizations that are really supporting it, um, and we're here. You know, not only along for this ride, but we're trying to really spearhead it. One of the things we're trying to do at Skylight Psychedelics is like really have people be able to gain access to this from both the training professional side, the licensed providers, but also the patients, right? There can be some financial barriers, things like that. We're trying to democratize too, and really kind of give people a chance at this. Yeah, totally. Dr. Lerman, any? Can yeah, I add something? Yeah. Thank you. I read my mind. Um, yeah, no, this is one of, one of my passions about psychedelics because I feel like this is psychedelic medicine and that, um, a lot of people don't understand that the way psychedelics really work, we could talk about all the neurotransmitters and all the neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, but the way that they really work is that they are the ultimate concierge doctor, right? They are the ultimate concierge doctor because they are you. And so when you eat psychedelic medicine or when you take psychedelic medicine, you are allowing access to your own inner healing intelligence, right? This is not stuff that we have been taught in medical school. We have not been taught this growing up. I mean, I teach my kids this now, but this is the language language that we've never really heard before, right? What the hell is an inner healing intelligence, right? You're crazy, you're cuckoo, but it's an in inner healer that every single person has. And our society does not, um, unfortunately, get behind the, that idea, right? But psychedelics are basically we all have this uh, i'm sure many people on this call have heard me say this before but we all have this sack of rocks that we carry around right and we're all kind of lugging this sack of rocks around and some of us have big boulders in there and all different size rocks and a lot of times you can go to therapy and throw out a few pebbles a few bigger rocks but oftentimes you still have this big sack that you carry around and the way that I like to look at psychedelics is that they are the key to opening that sack and really allowing you to just take a big look inside and start working through all the things, right? And that's just how they work. Mm -hmm. They allow you access to what is in your luggage, right? And so there's nothing else that does that, right? All these SSRIs, all this conventional Western medicine, I mean, those medicines work 30% of the time for people with depression and, and anxiety and whatnot. I mean, these medicines and conventional standard rehab, these things don't work. So 
it's time to actually try something that works. And, you know, what I like to think of Western, Western medicine approaches, listen, sometimes they're helpful for people and it's not always all bad. And I don't try to be an absolutist about it, but it really seems like Western medicines try to keep people in this kind of window of not feeling too great and not feeling too terrible, but you're just in this window and you sweep your shit under a rug and you don't ever look at it and you're just in this space, right? Psychedelics, it's okay to be really happy and it's okay to be feel something. Like we are not feeling as a society. Like it is psychedelics allow us to get in touch with our root stuff look at it, work through it, process it for the first time, and then move through it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, so beautiful. I'm a big fan because I think it's important to really access, you know, people with addiction. I know Scott says not all people have a trauma or something. I would, I would say probably, honestly, if it's not 100%, it's 99.99% of people who have addiction. They got there because of something, right? There it is, doctors. Um, yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. She should have mic dropped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She had a couple in there herself. Yeah. yeah. I wish yeah. she would have just really told us how she felt, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And she does in that. Yeah, she episode. does. She's an she goes on to do amazing. it. And yeah. that, that was an interesting podcast because all three of the two docs and then the journalists were just in, so passionate, especially oh, yeah. Joe Shrank. Like, controlling his energy, well, that wasn't possible. It was just a lot of energy and we, yeah. you know, there, we, right. we made it a blooper reel later, but, uh, but in any yeah. case, I, I think when you, when you look at the MAPS programming, we've talked about MAPS on this episode, I forget what the acronym stands for, but um, it's essentially the organization that sets up um, funding and protocols for experimenting with psychedelics. And these doctors have been uh, inundated in these practices already. Many of them have gone through it themselves as a process uh, too. And the thing that comes up over and over and over and over again is something like this carries a weight to it. it and that's that concierge effect. It's sort of illuminating things that take sometimes a painfully long time to address as far as awareness goes, brings that to light. Now we have something concrete to work with uh, in a way that um, feels like a missed opportunity in first time treatment episodes. You know, we run into folks, of course, all the time, been to 10 treatments, 15 treatments, 20 treatments. They're not, in, they're not able, it seems like, it's not just, it can't be that all 20 were bad. Yeah. We can't get to the reason for change. Why am I doing this in the first place? My mom's mm -hmm. making me do it right. And it feels like these psychedelic medicines can actually deliver that for the individual. Certainly we'll see in the process that you know, this won't always be effective and it won't always be available, and especially for people with, you know, history of psychosis or family history of psychosis, um, mania and those, those things and so forth. But um, why wouldn't we, as you alluded to, Clinton, crave that for that immediate showing up of the patient, I'm ready. Yeah. In a way that we spend two to three weeks sometimes just almost arguing <laughs> the point of like why it's important to stay one more day. Yeah, I think this... This conversation kind of reminds me of the T.J. Woodward um, clip we saw in the sense of um, we spend our lives kind of overcoming trauma, facing trauma, all of these different things, and we lose sight of the whole imperfect version of ourselves. And I, what I hear her saying is that it gives you insight into that whole imperfect person, and it kind of it kind of gives you that hope that you can get back there. Mm -hmm. And like you said before, giving you 
a direction on how to get back there as well because I think a lot of clients who come in, people in general again, are so hopeless and they don't feel like they can ever get back to that whole imperfect self or they have no even idea that that whole imperfect self really lives inside of them and is yeah. a part of them they, because they've just been so torn away from it. And so that's how I kind of see this this movement, the psychedelic um, movement is just just another avenue to open a door and say, hey, there is hope. There is possibility. You can heal. You don't have to suffer for the rest of your life. You just have to put in the work in order to get there again. Mm -hmm. and, I, and again, I think, you know, the one thing I loved um, about what she said is this idea of the self-healing, right? Like mm -hmm. this self-healing intelligence. And we, we don't talk about that. Again, everything is outside of us. Yep. You know, we look it's, uh, I'm, I mean, even in the 12-step model, you know, it's, you're, you're always looking to a higher power mm -hmm. to help sort of navigate and change and guide. And, and we, we forget that we have this internal compass, you know. And again, it's a process of recalibration. I think that, you know, when you look at her metaphor as far as having this bag of boulders, you know, being able to, to, have, uh, to have that moment where you can open that bag and you see all of the boulders that are weighing you down, but then somewhere under there you also see that big, perfect, whole ball of light that's just been kind of buried. And now you know like, what you need to work on in order to get back there. Like, that, is, mm -hmm. that is the most empowering thing that you could probably imagine. You know, do you still need help? Do you still need outside resources? Absolutely, but in the end it is your journey, right? It is your action, it is your strength that is going to move those rocks out of the way. And in the end, you're just coming back to yourself. You know, like there's nothing outside of you that you've been that you've been missing. It, it's been there the whole time. And so, to re, again, this is a, a to me this feels like a recalibration of the way that we look at health in general, the way that we look at the whole human as a, as an entity, as as a as a being of um, that is whole and perfect. Like you know, to use TJ's words. Um, this is an opportunity for us to actually reconnect in a way that feels much more profound than um, the sort of paths that we've laid out up until this point. And again, it's about empowerment as opposed to disempowerment. It's mm -hmm. about internal healing as opposed to external healing. And it is uh, a vastly different um, path forward, which is extremely exciting to me. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, kind of to, to bring this thing home at the end of the day, medications is an external strategy. Yeah. But what is it trying to do, right? It's trying to accomplish a sort of stillness and a wellness that allows us to start internally Absolutely. working, right? Yeah. To remove the distraction of the suffering and to move forward in that way. Well, they take four to six weeks. So what else are we doing? We're going to include movement and exercise into that, Absolutely. to the dopamine metaphor. When we're moving and grooving, we experience a little pain there. And if the homeostasis is the goal of the dopaminergic effect, then we're going to receive a pleasure hit on the other side of that to mm -hmm. rebalance. That's why we feel good when we exercise right at the end of the day. But again, uh, that can have consequences. We can overexercise yeah. and end up suffering in the process, harming ourselves, hurting our bodies, not resting, you know, that type of thing. Again, an external strategy that invites internal wellness, but not in and of itself Absolutely. and by itself and all the time without consequence. Uh, in sort of the, the bro science era that we're in that we talk about seemingly every Friday now is like cold plunges, right? You know, this idea that we're going to jump into a cool, you know, a cool, you know, puddle of water or a barrel in our backyard now. I don't know why we're becoming so <laughs> awoken to this, but 
there's a there's a pain that we experience in doing yeah. that. So the the homeostasis effect is we're going to derive a pleasure, but it again it's external. And where do we see this sort of pain to mm. pleasure externality when people cut themselves, right, yeah. and self harm themselves in that mm -hmm. way? I am experiencing such a painful moment that when I do this more painful thing, I actually experience relief from the thing that was causing the frustration in the beginning. Yeah. So we have to be careful. Yeah. Because we keep doing this as a society of externalizing <laughs> all of our damn strategies yeah. onto the next damn thing, like jumping into cold water, which to the tribal notions of thing we were never doing in the first yeah. place. It just kill you. And which yeah. you get pneumonia <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, or know, you yeah. drown because you didn't have <laughs> swimming lessons in forty degree water. So. <laughs> <laughs> Rant wow. aside, like we, we've got to figure out a way to go inward at Absolutely. the end of the day. All of these external things are valid, but they cannot sit in yeah. and of themselves. They're just themselves. tools. They're just, well, tools. just tools. Isn't substance use, any addiction, external, right? Absolutely. It's the same yeah. kind of thing at that yeah. point. We're just reinforcing that process again and again yeah. when we do that. Mm -hmm. right. And the, the aim with psychedelics, at least we hope, or at least what Dr. Bienenfeld was stating, Google it. People all over the world are experiencing right. tremendous insights and opportunities derived from internal awareness. And yes, it's an external thing, but it invites in all of the external possibilities Absolutely. and the ability to move forward in a pretty mm -hmm. profound 100%. way. 100%. And internal acceptance is the antithesis of shame. Like it is, that is, if you want a cure for shame, it's about ex internal acceptance. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, well, we figured it out. We yeah. It's done. Episode 100. It only took us 100 episodes. We yeah. Figured it all out. <laughs> hundreds of minutes. Hundreds of minutes. Hundreds of minutes. Tens of hundreds yeah, of to minutes. Get it, yeah, to get it through it at the end of the day. I, I had so much more that I wanted to add to this episode. We've had so many wonderful conversations. Absolutely. Thank you um, for inviting just, me. Yeah, and not just with external, you know, uh, celebrities and so forth and journalists and authors and doctors and people coming in, but with our own staff yeah. um, at the end of the day. And it's been... For me, such a joy to walk through this episode and reflect on like what we're doing and, and really how much of alignment, at least I think, what we're doing is with the reality of the world. And at the end of the day, it's hard to preserve the concept of like no philosophies. I recognize like we're engaged in one, but I think we're inviting more people in, absolutely. you know, resulting from that. And if I can add one thing, absolutely, I think that I do. I like have to thank you guys and Jason, who's not here for allowing us to be this like be able to have these ideas be able to share this and be able to disrupt the industry in a clinical way not just clinical but like i i do like i have to thank both of you and jason for that is that i've never felt like i don't have the space to be in a clinical place that promotes all of these ideas like you guys encourage this and you continue to push us in a way of like let it there's more there's more there's more we can be doing there's more we can be asking there's more that we can be you know always being curious is the thing and so I, that's that's just taking a second to thank both of you and jason that you give our staff the opportunity to grow to learn to I mean, to even meet people like Kevin or Dana or whatever mm -hmm. of these different things are. So my two cents, thank you guys, because without your leadership, we as a team can't dive into these different modalities that everybody else is saying no to, so. Yeah, love that, appreciate it. Absolutely. It, it reminds me of the, some interdisciplinary meeting a while ago <laughs> where I said like, yeah, we're gonna give you all the paints and the brushes 
the canvas is yours, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so all the ideas, as the metaphor writer, the paints and the brushes, and you guys are like, what do we do with this? And it's like, I, don't, I'm, I, I just gave you the tool. You <laughs> yeah. go paint the damn yeah, picture absolutely. at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's beautiful, right? Giving people who are better trained, better educated than I am, at least in clinical work absolutely. and medicine and all of that. So I'm a philosophy major. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a high level cheerleader of mission, vision, core values. Yeah. But beyond that, like that part of our company culture is not my job and it's not my work. And it's not what I'm doing here. So um, it's special to be a part of something like this where we can provide resources and you guys run with it in your own beautiful way. And, um, and it's working out very well, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I may have the letters, but you guys have the talent. You guys have the skills. And more than anything, you have the passion. And um, yeah, you, get, you outclassed me ages ago so <laughs> I'm just at this point I'm just I just contain it so, yeah. and uh, and it is an absolute joy and I'm just I'm grateful to um, to be to have been given this opportunity to it feels like this great experiment mm -hmm. right um, but it's an experiment that is of the highest order because we you know our mission at peaks is to save lives and I can't think of anything more meaningful and I can't think of an opportunity more powerful um, and that sings to you. So appreciate it. Brandon right. Burns, yeah. CEO. So yeah. <laughs> Feelings. Back to I action know. and thoughts. Those are, <laughs> those are safer. Uh, and I, taking the viewers out here, I do want to acknowledge Chris Burns and Jason Friesen, the other hosts of this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, you guys bring more to it than I ever could. Um, getting really emotional here at the NGs, um, and they're not even here. <laughs> uh, but you bring a different insights into this in, uh, in a way that I can't through mechanisms of recovery, through kind of those emotional feel goods that Jason brings onto the episode. Um, it's all valuable, and I love what we're doing here uh, within the podcast. And our goal for the viewers moving forward is just to get better at this, get better at bringing forward um, what it's like to be in this industry, but more to the point, I think. Um, what are the solutions and paths to wellness? And how can we support individuals through these episodes about recognizing what it means to call a treatment center, what it means to be in one, what it means to be in therapy, receiving you know, medical interventions, like whatever the case might be, and empowering family systems to make the, best, the next best possible choice for their loved one and to be empowered in the process. Uh, so with that, uh, for all the viewers out there, Brendan Burns, Chief Executive Officer, signing off here. Coop, thank you. Questions at findingpeaks.com. Questions at findingpeaks.com when you submit it allows us to create future episodes around Absolutely. those questions. We've done that for the for the kids out there, so keep uh, bringing that to, uh, to our attention. We love answering uh, these important questions. The Facebooks, the TikToks, the Twitters, the yeah. Instagrams. We're everywhere, people. Yeah, we're all and over the place. More importantly, we're more positive than all the other places on those social media. <laughs> right? We're not for fighting sure. each other. We're not trying to... Uh, have you come to our side of the street versus the other side. We're just trying to invite you into a really important discussion because mental health, substance use disorder, all of its underlying causes, effects, and whatever, it's a complex picture and we live in a society uh, that's challenging to work through these issues on. And so we'll invite you into all those things. And uh, yeah, with that, until next time, love you all. See you soon. Yeah.